0: Good morning. morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verse 2 and onwards, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. I like to see in this a call for a recounting of sacred history, ancient sacred history and much more modern sacred history. And uh, that's what I hope to accomplish some this morning, but drop on down. If you would be so kind to verse 7. Well, let's go to verse 6, I guess. The purpose of all this is that the children to come, the generation to come, might know the teachings of the Lord. The children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And verse 8 And may not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation. A generation that did not set its heart. aright, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows. Turned back in the day of battle. If there's anything I do not want to do. It's turned back in the day of battle when the Lord has given me the weapons I need. Let's bow our heads for a short word of prayer, please. Father, we thank you that you have equipped and provided your people with all that is necessary. And Lord, we would ask that as individuals you would equip and provide us that we have such a rich heritage, such a rich accumulation of theology and practical experience and history, and yet we as each individual needs to learn it for ourselves in some way, and we pray that you would help us to do that. I ask that you'll be with us this morning, be with me in the words that I speak, may they be a blessing to someone I pray, in Jesus name, amen. Well um, <clears throat> I did not put this title in the bulletin, they asked me for a title for the bulletin and I gave them a much more mundane one because I didn't think this would look very dignified. Um, if you were here last night you understand, I didn't give her that bar, well ignore the bar on the bottom. Um, <laughs> You will, uh, you will understand that uh, Adventist Futury is a, an update on the concept of Adventist history. I'm not that interested in history for the sake of history. I like to see history used as a tool for the future. And um, being on a university campus with much more highly educated individuals, I thought that we could use this as a subtitle, uh, Eschatological Precursor Events, as presented within the milieu of 19th and early 20th century 7th Adventism. There is much in our past that is there to teach us about the future, and specifically the final events. I am just entirely convinced that the Lord has been running dry rehearsal after dry rehearsal or dress rehearsal or whatever they call them, I'm not an actor, Um, trying to get us ready so that we know our lines, basically. That's what I hope to do. Spiritualism. Wow, that's a pretty basic issue. Um, hey, what are the two great errors? Sunday sacredness, immortality of the soul. Okay, well, I think there's more depth to this than we may have given it credit for sometimes, so let's see what we can get squeezed in in the next half hour. Little by little, Satan has prepared the way for his masterpiece of deception and the development of spiritualism. He has not yet reached the full accomplishment of his designs. But it will be reached in the last remnant of time. Says the prophet, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs, which go forth under the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Except those who are kept by the power of God through faith in His Word, the whole world will be swept into the ranks of this delusion. The people are fast being lulled to a fatal security to be awakened only by the outpouring of the wrath of God. Um, the point has been made countless times and, and I don't know where, what rock you would have been hiding under within Adventist circles if you hadn't heard it, but, you know, look at television, you know, don't, actually don't, uh, look at the TV guide maybe or something (laughs) else, that's as close as you need to get, okay? Um, it is swamped with this supernatural garbage, um, my all-time favorite and I'm sure I'm several years out of date, you know, but I just, I just, the irony of it, I couldn't believe uh, a few years back, evidently, they came out with a, a television program about a reformed vampire named Angel. <laughs> and, and this is what kids are growing up with. This is what they know. It's a serious issue. Well, spiritualism, you know the story. Hydesville, New York, the Fox family moved into the new house. Um, and uh, Maggie and Katie heard the rappings on the on the wall. This was all in 1849, right? Okay. What you may not realize is that by the mid-1850s, spiritualism was the most rapidly growing "quote-unquote" religious movement in the United States. It took off; it was incredible. By 1857, there were over a hundred magazines devoted to spiritualism in regular production. Yeah, some of them were you know a little less regular, but you know basically it was it was a it was a big thing. Now it wasn't sophisticated spiritualism. This was uh, American frontier spiritualism. That uh, you know bear in mind, you didn't have m- movie theaters, you didn't have You know, HBO, you didn't have, you know, so what did they do? Well, let's, you know, let's go over to Fred's house and float tables. You know, it was, it was a, you know, it was a thing to do. There wasn't a lot of philosophy involved in that branch of spiritualism, but it took off and it was very rapidly developed. Adventism ran into it in a big way for the first time in the case of Moses Hull. Moses Hull in the 1860s, early 1860s was a powerful Adventist evangelist. In some circles, he was probably more highly regarded than James White. Uh, he was an amazing guy. He worked in, uh, tent evangelism a couple of years at least with John Loughborough, 1861-62. Uh, he was up in Michigan with the, with the tent. And there was quite a series of events. They went to the city of Charlotte, or town, I don't really know how big it was. And their Hull was challenged to a debate on the question of the immortality of the soul with a Methodist minister. Well, the poor minister had, didn't have a clue what was, gonna, what, was, what was coming to him, you know, because Hull had the Bible. <laughs> and the, the, the minister was completely defeated. He says, wow, i was, I'd never heard anything like that before. That was new to him. They moved on. They came to the city of Lowell. At Lowell, they were challenged to a similar debate by a, a gentleman by the name of S.P. Leland, who was a spiritualist. Leland didn't have a clue what was coming to him because he was expecting the usual stuff of, you know, when you die, you'll go to heaven, you know? And and that's what he'd heard from all the other Christians. And all of a sudden, here's Hull, who has the Bible. When you're dead, you're asleep. And Leland was trying to claim that spiritualism was harmonious with with Christianity. Leland was wiped out, so to speak, in the debate. And he actually, as a result of that, he became a Christian. Not a Seventh-day Adventist that I know, but he gave up spiritualism. He says, wow, I, I really thought it was in harmony with the Bible. It's not. I'm out of here. Good. Okay. They moved on. They came to the city of Papa. Papa, at that time, and, and somebody told me once, and I'm in no position to judge, but uh, they said it still is a center of spiritualism. Okay? I don't know. I've never been there. But they came to Papa, and he was again challenged to a debate by a spiritualist, this time by the name, a gentleman by the name of Jameson. Hall confessed to Loughborough after the event. He said, I went into that debate feeling like I had, he just won all these other debates, you know, he was, he was good, man, he could handle it. He said, bring on all your devils, I am ready for the lot of them. He went by himself. He actually, this was a preliminary event. He went up to Papa by himself before the tent went up there. He had no other Christians with him. They put him on a stage with the two stands there was a formal debate, you know, initial presentation, initial presentation, rebuttal, rebuttal, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay. And uh, they were on a stage with their two stands, but there was a whole circle of chairs behind them, all occupied by spiritualists, mediums doing their um or whatever thing, you know. Uh, this is not something you mess with lightly. Um, by, it, by the time it was, uh, he was up to give his second speech in that debate, Hall said that his tongue felt as thick as his hand. And all the arguments that he had used in his previous debates seemed like foolishness in his mind, and he didn't have a clue. He, says he, he was wiped out. When he was over, he went up to Jameson and he says, I'm all ready to preach spiritualism. And Jameson, bless his benighted heart, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You're mesmerized. You go home and think before you do anything stupid, if only he'd followed the advice. Well, funny thing is, Jameson eventually became a Christian. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't out of that debate, but anyhow, he did become a Christian. He gave up on, on spiritualism. Hall was in a bad way. Eventually, he got back to Battle Creek. It took several weeks to get his head kind of straightened out. Eventually, he called for James and Ellen White. Um, Who was it? Elder Cornell, I believe, in Loughborough, and I'm not sure, maybe Butler or somebody else. They, they came, they had a special prayer, an anointing session, and he kind of you know, kind of got his head straightened back out. They sent him off to preach again. They figured, get him out into active service. So he and Loughborough went off preaching again, up and down, up and down, after a period of time. Finally, Hull came to Loughborough and he said, I can't do it. I'm, I'm going home tomorrow. He left within six weeks. He was a spiritualist. He moved to San Jose, California, and died in 1907. San Jose, incidentally, I know is a center of spiritualist activity. Um, Had a very freaky opportunity. I won't go into that. Anyhow, (laughs) that's a whole different story. Well, that made an impact in Adventism. Sometimes you learn by the mistakes that are made. But, you know, eventually... We ran into spiritualism again, uh, this time with a, another prominent individual, John Harvey Kellogg, MD. Uh, not a common picture of him there. That's in his relatively younger years. Kellogg was an, an amazing guy. Hopefully you know something about him. I, I could just stand and talk about him because he's such a, a fascinating guy. In, in many ways, he's, he's very high on my list of, you know, deceased Adventists that I'd like to meet if I had the opportunity. Um, I'm going to skip most of those things. There are a couple things that are important, however. One of the things that may have had a, a, a major impact on brother Dr. Kellogg was his stature. He was only five foot four. And there are those who say that he suffered from, you know, what what I call the little man's complex type of thing, you know, where he he just he, he just oh he wanted to be 6'3, you know, it just bugged him. And he had this this hang-up in life. He was uh, he was a very controlling guy. Um in his office, this is kind of a kick, in his office, he had a little alcove cut back into the wall with a hardwood bench set in there and a ruler permanently embedded in the back wall behind that and he had a very good eye now Kellogg was one of those guys that you, know, uh, that you know he wasn't really short he just had short legs let's put it that way you know from the waist up he was a pretty tall guy and and if you walked in his office he could he could just size you up and he knew you know he, he knew whether it was in your legs or in your torso and if it was in your legs he'd have you sit down you know and, and he'd sit down and he was taller than you are from the waist up You know, there's some evidence he might have had a hang up on this. (laughs) You know, you know, we can laugh about that. But we can't afford to let stupid hang ups keep us out of the kingdom. (laughs) You know, I mean, I I have a hard enough time figuring out my hang ups, let alone worrying about yours. But you ought to be worrying about yours. (laughs) I don't care what it is. It's not worth being left out of the kingdom. Well, anyhow. Kellogg was an amazing guy. Once upon a time, talking to da- Dr. Paulson, he asked him, he said, uh, Paulson, do you know how it is that I stay five years ahead of the medical community? Paulson said, no. He said, I read the spirit prophecy. Amen. I read the spirit of prophecy. Something new comes out. If it meshes with what I see in the spirit of prophecy, I grab it and I run with it and before anybody else has it figured out, I'm five years ahead of them. If it doesn't mesh, I just don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Five years later, they are all been burned and I'm smiling all the way I don't know, to the bank or wherever he's going. Um, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was, at one point, a very, very strong believer in the Spirit of Prophecy. Elder Butler once wrote him a letter and said, I used to think that you believed in the Spirit of Prophecy more than you did the Bible. That was at when it was a very definite used to think. Well, <clears throat> Kellogg, as I say, colorful, colorful individual in, in many ways fascinating. But one of the interesting little subplots of his life was that he didn't like to come in second. And once upon a time, it almost appeared that he was going to come in second. And he didn't want that. Um, he, um, He had met a young lady in Battle Creek. Now, this is not her. But he'd met a young lady in Battle Creek. The young lady's name was Mary Kelsey. And she was intelligent, gracious, attractive, all good things. And he began corresponding with her. But in process of time, it turned out that her interest was directed more towards a gentleman by the name of William C. White. And she married Willie White. And, you know, John and Willie never really got along that well after that. Um, Kellogg would never come in second. Mary Kelsey, pardon the, you know, crass point of view, but she was a prime catch. And John had to catch a better one. And it just so happened that a young lady came to accompany her sister to the Battle Creek Sanitarium after John had assumed the directorship of the institution. The young lady's name was Ella Eaton. She was intelligent, gracious, charming, educated, extremely educated. She had a a B.A. She graduated from Alfred University in 1872. She earned her doctor's degree in 1872. 72, da, 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 I don't know, 78 or something like that. Anyhow, um, Ella Eaton was, she could, she could write, she could sing, she was a musician. Um, she was a, a prime catch. And you know, I don't want to say anything to denigrate the dead, but there's an issue that concerns me with Ella Eaton. She was a good Sabbath-keeping young lady who never became a Seventh-day Adventist. It was a Seventh-day Baptist. Now, there were those in those in that time period that thought that Seventh-day Adventism and Seventh-day Baptism, I don't know, um, were, uh, <laughs> were pretty close together, okay? There were actually some high-level uh, talks in the, what was it, 1880s, 1890s about merging the two denominations. Well, that was a, a <laughs> no, you know, sanctuary, state of the dead, spirit of prophecy, you know, they had the Sabbath in common. Give him him credit for that, okay? Um, But Ella Eaton never became a Seventh-day Adventist. And that indirectly led to this gentleman being a frequent guest in the Kellogg home. This is Abram Herbert Lewis, DDLLD, editor of the Sabbath Recorder, the official church paper of the Seventh-day Baptist denomination, also chairman of the Church History and Homiletics Department of Alfred University, the flagship Seventh-day Baptist educational institution. He was the major professor under whom Mrs. Kellogg had earned her doctor's degree. He was quite a prominent individual. Some of you who are familiar with history may remember that in 1888, there was a Senator Blair who introduced a Sunday law bill. And, uh, immediately following the 1888 Minneapolis Conference, A.T. Jones traveled to Washington, D.C. to testify before Congress. Well, the other person chosen to testify before Congress on that occasion in early 1889 was Abram Herbert Lewis, DDLLD. Okay? He was a strong proponent of the Sabbath. I don't think I would enjoy meeting him nearly as much as I'd enjoy meeting Dr. Kellogg, but he was a very complex individual as well. Aside from being a strong proponent of the Sabbath, he was also a strong proponent of ecumenicism. In 1893, during the time of the uh, world's... What do they call that thing? The Big, the big Fair in Chicago. The World's Exposition, there we go, yeah. Uh, during that World Exposition, which was very tightly involved with Sunday Laws and all that sort of issue, okay, they also had the World Exposition, Congress of Religions, I think that was the name of it. Where they brought all these guys together. I didn't put it in this program, but I've got a picture of that, you know, and you've got all these Buddhists and Hindus and Swami this and you know so and so that and and all standing on the stage next to these, you know, rather tame looking American ecclesiastics, you know, whatnot. Lewis was pretty heavily involved in that. He actually chaired one of the sessions of that um, of that convention or whatever you want to call it. Complicate life just a tad bit more during his teenage years, Dr. Lewis had been a spiritualist medium. Well, okay, you know, forgive the sins of my youth. But it really bothered me reading his autobiography, an autobiographical account, when he's talking about that. It was under the tutorship of a spiritualist physician, and he said, after the rude manner of the times, I became a spiritualist medium. I didn't like that. What's this whole rude manner of the times stuff, you know? Why didn't he say, I was sucked into blatant apostasy and I became a spiritualist? I could have lived with that, okay? After the rude manner of the times, hello, what? Well, I don't know. I do know this. It tracks very nicely with an outfit called the Theosophical Society instituted by Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Don't worry about her if you're not familiar with her. The Theosophical Society um, was advocating a refined brand of spiritualism. They were not into table floating. You know, that's what had swept through the American frontier in the 1850s. By 1872, when Madame Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society, this was very refined, much more... Um, type of stuff, you know? I mean, it was, <laughs> it was philosophical, okay? Floating tables was for neophytes. I do not know. I've gone looking a couple of times, including once stopping into a Theosophical Society reading room, which I really only took for about 30 minutes. I thought, nah, I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> I've gone looking for some evidence to see if this guy was actually involved. I haven't found it yet. It wouldn't surprise me if I did. Lewis was probably a major contributor to Dr. Kellogg's Uh, eventual excursion into pantheism. (sighs) Ellen White makes some startling, ominous predictions. She does so under the imagery of the Alpha and the Omega of apostasy. The Alpha, uh, well, let's just show you what it says here. The Alpha, there we go. She had this to say Be not deceived. Many will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. We have now before us the alpha of this danger. She was talking about Kellogg's book, The Living Temple, and in very, very quick, hopefully this is not totally foreign to you, but the Battle Creek Sanitarium burned down February 18, 1902. Dr. Kellogg needed to raise some funds. One thing he was extremely good at was writing books. He could dictate books. Man, I wish, I wish, you know, life just isn't fair. This guy could dictate books in in final form. I mean, the copy editors hardly even touched them. He'd do this riding a bicycle around and around in his his parking lot out in front of his house. At 5 o'clock in the morning with some poor... Stenographer sitting on a stool in the middle taking dictation and he just paddle pedal, paddle pedal, and he dictate a book in final form it's, I Can't do that. I wish I could So Kellogg wrote this book the living temple. He said I'll donate my royalties We'll get the whole church mobilized. We'll go out there. We'll sell a gazillion copies of this all the money will go to rebuild the sanitarium The book was not such a great deal and as the um, as the book received some scrutiny, there were objections and concerns raised that it had pantheism in it. Okay. Ellen White was responding to this and when she spoke of this. We have now before us in that book the alpha of this danger. I am instructed to speak plainly. Remember how you meet fanaticism? Talked about that last night. Speak plainly. Meet it is the word spoken to me. Meet it firmly and without delay. But it is not to be met by taking our working forces from the field to investigate doctrines and points of difference. We have no such investigation to make. That's an important point to know. You, <laughs> you know, I have a poster um, back home. It says there are no stupid questions, but there are a lot of idiotic inquirers. Uh, <laughs> there are some questions you don't have time to get sucked into. We have no such investigation to make. In the book, Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. Okay, third statement here. I recognize the very sentiments against which I had been bidden to speak in warning during the early days of my public labors. Living Temple contains the alpha of these theories. I knew that I must warn our brothers and sisters not to enter into controversy over the presence and personality of God. The statements made in Living Temple in regard to this are incorrect." Okay. Well, that's a brief look at the Alpha. We'll get a little bit more in a second. But hey, face it. The Alpha was 100 years ago. It's the Omega that we want to be aware of. There is value for future in our history. What? What's the Omega? That's, that's the issue. That's, that's what I want to know. Okay? Well, um, unfortunately, and far be it for me to second-guess the Lord, but unfortunately, from my perspective, I'd say, you know, we're not told much about the omega. We have very little. Now, if you can read the grayed-out section, you'll see that that's what we read just a moment ago about the alpha. Notice the part at the bottom. The omega will be of a most startling nature. Okay, so what do you know about the omega now? It'll be startling. Okay. Come on, let's go. Hmm. Thank you. (laughs) Technology's great when it works. Okay, this is another quote that we've already read, but look at the bottom. The Omega will follow and will be received by those who are not willing to heed the warning God has given. So, what do you know about the Omega? It'll be startling, and people who don't listen to God will receive it. Third quote. This one I excerpted from the middle of what we read before. She said, I knew that the Omega would follow in a little while. And I trembled for our people. So there you have it. Those are the direct statements about the Omega. (laughs) You can find those selected messages. Book one, page 197, 200, 203. Startling. It will follow. Be received by those who basically, I would say, don't listen to the Bible and Spirit prophecy. And it made her tremble. That's all that she said directly about the Omega. It's, it's pretty scary. If you have any respect for Ellen White's opinion, it's pretty scary. But um, it's not a lot of info there. Well, fortunately there is one other way to understand the Omega. And that is simply between the relationship, the relationship between the Alpha and the Omega. Okay? She chose that expression for a reason, I believe. And she spoke of the Alpha and the Omega, of apostasy. So what do we, you know, what do we have here, okay? There we go. Now there have been two ways of looking at this historically. The first and by far the most common way of looking at this is, has been to say, well, you know, the Alpha is like the A of the alphabet, right? And the Omega is like the Z of the alphabet. They're opposite extremes. And a number of good individuals whom I respect have, down through the ages, ages, you know, 100 years since, um, said pantheism is the extreme internalization of God, believing that God is in me, God is in the air, God is in the food that I eat, God is an all-pervading non-entity out there someplace So the opposite of that would be, and they've come up with all sorts of different things. It's been kind of interesting. Uh, Different people have said different things. What's the opposite of pantheism? There is another way of looking at the relationship between the alpha and the omega, however, and that is that it's—they're not opposites at all. It's a progression. The alpha is the beginning. The omega is the full development kind of like an acorn and an oak tree. What's the opposite of an acorn? I don't know. But I, knew, I do know what an acorn grows into. I'm advocating today what for years nobody really liked to advocate. I don't know if anybody even thought of it. It just seems so preposterous. I believe the omega of apostasy is simply a full grown development of the Alpha. Seventh-day Adventism ever get sucked into that? Is that even a danger to Seventh-day Adventists? It seemed utterly preposterous. Well, notice this last quote there at the bottom of that slide. Living temple contains the alpha of a train of heresies. It's hard to make a train into an opposite And the way Ellen White uses Alpha and Omega in other contexts, she never uses them as, as opposites. She says, Christ is the Alpha, the first link, and the Omega, the last link of the gospel chain, which is welded in the book of Revelation. It's in the manuscript releases, volume 10. Christ is, you know, Alpha, Omega. This is not opposites, this is from start to finish. She says in Testimonies, Volume 8, we have a Bible full of the most precious truth. It contains the alpha and omega of knowledge. It's not opposites. It's beginning to end. Hmm. Well, a little more on the alpha here. Let's see. Come on. Let's not be obstreperous. There we go. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. Okay, the basic problem of the Alpha was pantheism, the belief that God is not a specific person but some sort of all-pervading non-entity. The heavenly sanctuary therefore became wherever God is, which is everywhere in general and nowhere in particular. Kind of pulls the rug out from under that one. Um, There were also clear indications Move that along. There were also clear indications of direct supernatural involvement. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times we make, I've seen discussions of Kellogg and the pantheism thing, and it becomes just, oh, kind of a piece of esoteric philosophy. But, you know, Ellen White didn't see it that way. Writing to Kellogg, she wrote, When you wrote that book, you were not under the inspiration of God. There was by your side the one who inspired Adam to look at God in a false light. The development of these developments of these last days will soon become decided. This is in the context here of Kellogg. When these spiritualistic deceptions are revealed to be what they really are, the secret workings of evil spirits, those who have acted a part in them will become as men who have lost their minds. As I am shown special things of Satan's science and how he deceived the holy angels, I am afraid of the men who have entered into the study of the science that Satan carried into the warfare in heaven. How I have longed to be where I should not be compelled to see the same science practiced on this earth by medical practitioners. When men accept the bait, it seems impossible to break the spell Satan casts over them because the enemy works out the science of deception as he worked it out in the heavenly courts. I don't fully understand all, those, all the meaning of those statements. But I have to say, it sounds like there's some, some, some content there. If permitted, the evil angels will work the minds of men until they have no mind or will of their own. They are led as the angels cast out from heaven were led. Let the world go into spiritualism, into theosophy, into pantheism if they choose. We are to have nothing to do with this singular deceptive branch of Satan's work. Theosophy. I think that's the only time she uses that phrase, theosophy. You know, if we're going to translate that into modern vernacular, that would be the new age movement. That's all it is. It's the new age movement. Okay. Okay. So now we know spiritualism is bad. Stay away from it. Don't go to seances. Don't play with Ouija boards. Right? It's easy. I'm going to make a leap here. And I want to warn you that this is a logical leap because this next letter that I'm going to read to you was written in 1900 before the pantheism issue developed. I think that it fits. But this is an area where I would give you free liberty to say, well, Dave, that's a nice thought, but I disagree with you. So I want to warn you, I may, I I may, you know, if, if I say something silly, I'm going to at least tell you in advance that there's, there's a possibility of something silly coming up here. I think it fits. You judge. Okay. The great final test, the great final test to me goes along very nicely with the concept of the Omega of apostasy, Omega being the end. I think there's probably some similarity. They'll at least be chronologically associated, I suspect. She said this, The truth for this time, the third angel's message is to be proclaimed with a loud voice, meaning with increasing power as we approach the great final test. This test must come to the churches in connection with the true... What would you put in there? What's the great final test? The Sabbath. Sure. Sure in connection with the true Sabbath. It makes sense, but it's not right. Sorry? There it is. True medical missionary work. A work that has the great physician to dictate and preside in all it comprehends. Really? Wow. I hate to say it, especially to this audience. But that's where the Alpha came. (laughs) The Alpha, somehow, simple circumstances, coincidence perhaps, some predilection somewhere, developed within our medical work. The great final test is coming to all the churches in connection with true medical missionary work. I suspect, but you have the right to disagree if you so choose, I suspect that that means the Omega is something we should be watching for, of all places, in Loma Linda, California. (laughs) I'm not saying anything mean there. I'm just saying you guys are on the front line. It's another different context statement. Again, this one is, you know, from a different setting, but I think they go together. God's word declares that Satan will work miracles. He will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will then be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will take place in Benny Hinn meetings. It doesn't say that. Hello? Hello? (laughs) <laughs> there we go. There we go. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. Hello. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a, unfortunately, there's a reason behind this. I thought we could avoid the trouble, but um, there it is. We'll get there. I'll, I'll read it to you. How's that? They will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. What is going on? This is what it says. Many who have had great light will fail to walk in the light because they have not become one with Christ. Um, Now, I don't know. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. Where did we get back to there? Well, we're in some sort of a strange endless loop here. Um, And that... It's over. Okay, Uh, that that was my last slide, so it's okay. Um, Again, like I said last night, I don't have any great startling revelations. I think it's pretty obvious at this point what I think the lesson is. It's one of the two great deceptions. You people need to be watching, because a hundred years ago, we lost some people on that account. And back then, she called it the alpha of apostasy. I don't want to see any of you lost. heads for prayer. Please, you all stand with me and pray. Father, we thank you for lessons, for history, for the chance to just simply look at things and try to draw the conclusions that you've built into them for us. We pray that you would not allow us to be misled or to imagine things that are not really there. And yet, Lord, we want to Pay attention to every word that comes from the mouth of God. We pray your blessing now. We thank you for this Sabbath day. We pray you'll go with us, guide and direct our thoughts and our actions, and may we have your fellowship in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.